Good morning. My name's Caleb. My voice does not sound near as good as Ian. I didn't realize how goofy I probably sound till hearing that. Perfect. Jeez. I always want to give you just my notes, buddy, and just be like, Ian, you just want to read for me today? Um, thanks for doing that. That was awesome. And so, uh, seriously. Uh, okay, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 1 this morning if you want to turn there. Uh, these next two weeks, we get to talk about the Christmas story. And so the way this year we're going to do it, uh, be in Matthew, I believe, I know for sure this week, and I think Chad's in Luke next week as, as well. And so we're just going to go to the two gospel stories and the text that tell us about the birth of Jesus. And so, yeah, as you open up your Bibles, um, it'll be in Matthew uh, chapter 1, verse 18. Go ahead and get there as well. So today, a bit of work to do, we're going to actually walk through this uh, semi-quickly, a bit brisker than normal, because after we understand the context of the story, what's happening here, we're going to look at it in, basically in two big parts, uh, why Jesus came and how Jesus came. But after that, see three implications of this. I mean, we have this incarnate Emmanuel here. What does this mean? Like, is, is there something beyond this? Is really the Christmas story bound to 2,000 years ago? Is there even more? And so that's a bit of what we're going to do. So if it feels like we're going fast, it's because there's some more after we get through verses 18 through 25. Um, but if you have your Bibles, we'll go ahead and start in the first part of verse 18. Uh, it says, The birth of Jesus came about this way, after his mother Mary had been engaged to Joseph. So just a bit of context, things that helps here. The, the marriage custom uh, in Jewish culture at this time, it essentially had two stages. Uh, in a marriage custom. There is the engagement, which we see here, and then the actual wedding and the marriage that um, followed that. And so may think that sounds identical to our culture, but engagement here is actually a bit different. And so I couldn't help but think, because um, we, were, we were at a Christmas party this past week, and so what, when Brandy, like, I had to write down something at Ron and Vicky's house, something people didn't know about you. And Brandon's like, you should write down that you were engaged before. I'm like, yeah, that's a fun Christmas party. Like, <laughs> let's put that in the hat, <laughs> right? Like, and so, like, let's just throw that in. Um, like, no, no, but, like, so, I mean, I'll never forget the time that uh, I was gone teaching and Brandon come up from Alabama staying with my sister. And I guess she had known that there must have been a ring there before. And so she wanted to see if I still had it. And I did because I'm a bit of, like, a pragmatic optimist. I just love to have a good plan. And so the place I bought this ring from, that if you kept it, forbid that something went awry, it didn't work out, you could get a full refund if you brought it back and traded it for another. And so I had it. And so she found it and was a little bit surprised. Like, and I'm like, what do you want me to do with it? Like march this to Mordor? I mean, like, this is not like, so she finds it. And so we had a little bit different feelings about the ring. Um, but we had had a big date day eventually planned as we knew for sure we want to proceed towards marriage. And, and so we did what I thought anyone would do. Again, if you love a good plan, but you're hopeful that it worked, we took the ring with us and Brandy um, went with me as well, carrying the ring. And, and she got to walk in and pick out her own ring. And I thought this is great, right? Like if, you, if we sold it back uh, on its own, they'd give you the money back for the diamond. But if you took the actual ring, they said, we'll give you full value for whatever you, and you can trade it in. And so I thought this was wonderful. Um, I, we have to ask Brandy if she appreciated the savings that we got as much, or, rather, or if she'd rather just cash it in and bought her own. Um, but, but engagement's a bit different, right? Our engagement's a bit different. We can have that here and even kind of laugh about the way that our stories unfold. In the text here, engagement's different. It's not the exact same. Uh, your translation might actually say betrothed. Um, it's much more binding. In fact, to be engaged, to be betrothed, you are legally bound to that person, like once you're engaged, you're legally bound to the point that if you broke off the engagement, it was literally considered a divorce. So once a couple entered into an engagement, they were legally married in every way except for the physical uh, consummation of the marriage. And that would happen about a year after 
and engagement. And I share all that because that's where Mary and Joseph are at in this story. They're legally bound to each other, but also in no way could they have been faithful to God or Mary to Joseph and she actually be with child. And yet this is exactly what happened and is found out. So we'll read the, the second half of, of verse 18. It says in your Bibles, it was discovered, discovered before they came together that she was pregnant from the Holy Spirit. And in fact, we know in this story, by the time of this narrative in, in Matthew, she's about four months pregnant. She had spent the first three months with her relative, Elizabeth, and now she's returning to Nazareth where she's found to be pregnant. And I think it's worth pausing here just a bit and just thinking, like, imagine this return for Mary as she's coming home, like the isolation, um, shame, even though she knows she hasn't sinned, but what are other people thinking? But likely fear, right? Because betrothal was a legal marriage. And yet others would have assumed that she was unfaithful because her pregnancy would have been evidence of adultery to the point that would have been actually a penalty of stoning is what she would have deserved. And even more, you must, you must think Joseph thought she committed adultery as well, right? Like he must have thought she cheated as well. So just imagine these last months and then this return home. Um, I think here we have this reminder for ourselves that God plays out his good plan for us in his time and not our own. Like think about it. God told Mary about this months before he came and told Joseph. Like surely it would have felt better, have gone better, been just been better for them to know together. Could the angel not have waited till they're sitting by each other and given this news at the same time? And yet often God accomplishes his glory and our goodness in our life through what we experience as difficulty or conflict. Like I, uh, Rob Landis shared this with me this week, and this is gold. And I think it's both fitting for this story here and our own story. Um, he sent this to me in text this week. He also knows it by heart, just doesn't memorize, but he said, I couldn't memorize it, so I'll read it. It says, somehow we realize great stories are told in conflict, but we are unwilling to embrace the potential greatness of the story we are actually in. We think God is unjust rather than just a master storyteller. Like, how good is that? Like, he's always working, and that's what we're going to see play out here. Uh, in verse 19, it, it, the story keeps going. It says in verse 19, so her husband Joseph, being a righteous man, and not wanting to disgrace her publicly, decided to divorce her secretly. So another natural question here is, what's meant by a private divorce? Well, of course, at this point, Joseph clearly had to believe that Mary committed adultery, and there's good reason for him to assume this and think this. And so in view of the law, he must divorce her, because if he didn't, he would actually be condoning the adultery. So there are really two options that Joseph had here um, in this situation, there is public divorce, and then there is private divorce. And so he, he, the law didn't require that he had to actually do it publicly. He could divorce her privately in front of two or three witnesses, and doing so would actually save her a bit of reputation, but even more, it could actually save her very life. And so we see the compassion and the, the character of Joseph revealed here. Like he moves forward in a way that maintains his needed personal righteousness before God, but he does it in a way that shows compassion to Mary even though he considers her to have committed adultery against him. And then here, this is where the story begins to turn, after this starts to play out. Verse 20, But after he considered these things, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, don't be afraid to take Mary as your wife, because what has been conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. Okay, again, like what fear is the angel here dispelling? Well, do not fear here, is it, 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 the angel's communicating, don't be afraid of the stigmas and the consequences that'll be attached to him when he stays married to Mary. 
Like when he doesn't go through with this divorce, what that would be considered a righteous decision. Now he'll be considered unrighteous. Like to obey the angel here actually would have ruined both of their reputations. And yet again, the angel didn't show up and explain the situation to everybody in the town, right? Just like for Mary, now for Joseph, it wasn't as if everyone around had this angel come and share the truth. Instead of informing, what every, informing everyone else what happened, he simply says, don't, don't worry about what other people think. Like the angel didn't say, hey, God's going to change others' perceptions of you. He just says, cling to what is true. You hold on to what God has spoken. And this is what God says to him. In verse 21, here's what the angel tells Joseph. So she will give birth to a son, and you are to name him Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. Now, all this took place to fulfill with the Lord what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. I love this verse. This is a key verse, right? See, the virgin will become pregnant and give birth to a son, and they will name him Emmanuel, which is translated, God is with us. When Joseph woke up, he did as the angel had commanded him. He married her, but he did not have sexual relations with her until she gave birth to a son and he named him Jesus. Okay, Joseph immediately obeys by carrying out the second phase then in this marital process. He goes through with this wedding ceremony, but then he even further obeys because he waits and does what the, the angel says um, and, until Jesus is born, right? Before having any relation with his wife. And so even to honor God further and to leave no doubt that this son was truly incarnate, was from God. Um, and that's a pretty quick overview of the historical and human context uh, and while I, and here's why. Like, I think it's necessary and important to always humanize the account. We don't just want to skip through it. We also want to avoid at Christmas time moralizing other characters who aren't the main character in the story, right? We don't want to just moralize and make the Christmas story about Mary and Joseph, how we can be like Mary or how we can be like Joseph. Because the Christmas story is not about, oh, here's how you be like Mary, here's how you be like Joseph. The Christmas story is a miraculous mystery revealed in Jesus. It's not an account of other humans to be more alike, but it's that God became like us and became human. So while I think there could be several applications rightly made from the lives of Mary and Joseph, to understand the significance of this passage and the centrality of the Christmas story, I think we have to ask, what is this passage actually telling us about Jesus? And I think there's two points. We already talked about them. Like this birth account is giving us two things primarily. It's first, why Jesus came. And second, it's how he came. So this first one, why Jesus came. Um, this is the first main point. It's found in the angel's own words to Joseph. Like, like, what does the angel say to Joseph? Well, in verses 20 and 21, he says, Name him Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. This name, Jesus, in Hebrew is Joshua or Yeshua, right? And it means God saves. And the, the name Jesus is actually really common and popular. It's given to a lot of Hebrew boys because this was the hope promise, right? This coming of Messiah, that Yahweh would send someone to provide salvation. And we even talked about this last week as we we're in the book of John, that there is this wide-held hope that God would send someone who would deliver, right? A Messiah who would come um, and, and free them, free Israel from Roman oppression. But this isn't what the angel draws on here, right? Like last week, we kind of said, the angel here draws on a much less popular, but a much more important theme. It's salvation from sins, that what they needed the basic need of the people of Israel was a Messiah who would come and save them from their sins. What this means then is, is that we cannot understand Christmas without Calvary. Like I saw that quote this week. That's so good, right? To under we just sang it. Like we can't understand it. Like it was a song we sang. The Christmas story, it starts with a cradle and then it moves to and through a cross. 
Like we can't fully appreciate the Christmas story if we forget why he came. The, the true tree of Christmas, right? We each probably have a Christmas tree in our house. It's undoubtedly really one though that is decorated not with sentimental ornaments, not that those are bad, but it was decorated with the slain body and sacrificial blood of Jesus as he came to die for our sins. Like the true light of the world hung up on a tree for all to see. Christmas is not when we simply remember that Jesus came then, but rather we have Christmas so that we will repent of our sins. This is why he came. But if we read the whole Bible, we also read it's more than this, right? The Christmas story is more than this. Like not adding to the cross, but the good news of the gospel doesn't end there, right? Like we also sang it, like went through from cradle to the cross, but then it says, but the grave couldn't hold him. That wasn't the end. Like three days later, he rose from the dead. There was an empty tomb and then an ascension and then a coming of the Holy Spirit. And then the church was established and a kingdom now is being built and he's coming back one day. I mean, the Christmas story continues on then. So the Christmas story, it is undoubtedly about a cross, but it also goes beyond a cross. It's no less than that, but it's definitely more. Like the only way to God is through the cross of Christ, but the end of Christianity does not end at Jesus' cross. Meaning, we can also miss the full Christmas story if we simply limit the measure of it from cradle to cross. Like 2,000 years ago, a time like the story ends there. And again, please don't mishear me. For the Christian, the cross is definitely the full measure of our sins taken on by Jesus. But the cross is not the limit of God's eternal plan for redemption. Like the cross was never the end. Rather, it was Jesus' chosen means for the end plan, which is this. He came to be with us. That's what the text says, right? And he came like us. And he came to position, position himself on it, on the cross, in flesh, so that he could then position us to be like him, right? Perfect, freed, loved by God, known by God, to forever then also be with him. This is what Christmas is all about. This is what makes Christmas so astonishing, how this passage explicitly states exactly how the end plan of God quite literally enfleshed itself out, right? It fleshed itself out here in Jesus' coming, that our God would come as an incarnate Emmanuel, meaning that God would not just come with us, but coming exactly like us. That leads to the second point in this text, why Jesus came, came for, to be with us and us to be with him, but also how Jesus came. If we were to circle back and reread the passage again together, I think if we did it over and over and over, you'd begin to see a bit of a theme here in what Matthew repeats. Like the number of times that Matthew elaborates or repeats the same main point. I'll just pull it out for you for time's sake. Like in verse 18, it says, before they came together, meaning negative, like it wasn't, she wasn't with Joseph when she conceived. And it follows that in verse 18, it says, but pregnant from the Holy Spirit. So this is by the Holy Spirit. And then verse 19 underlines the fact that it wasn't Joseph's baby. It says, not Joseph again. And then in verse 20, it says, don't be afraid to take Mary as your wife because it's not fornication, right? Not adultery. She did not have sex. She was a, was a virgin birth, it says. And it continues in verse 20, but because what had conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. And then in verse 23, the virgin will become pregnant. And then verse 25, but did not have sexual relations with her. Again, she's still a virgin, wanting to make perfectly crystal clear what's happened here. Like seven different ways Matthew describes and emphasizes how Jesus came into the world. And if someone in the Gospels repeats this over and over, begin to think, okay, this must be of primary importance. Like what Matthew wants you to know is that Jesus, yes, he came by a virgin birth, but not just by a virgin birth. Jesus came through a divinely conceived virgin birth. 
meaning, guys, this, and this is what's amazing here. Jesus wasn't just a miraculous Messiah born, and he was, but Jesus is God in flesh. Like, think about this. So I think we say, okay, I've heard that. That's good. But, but just think about the sheer vastness of our God. Like, like think how big he is. Like, we can't, right? Like, anytime I, I don't know if like you, when I try to think of how big God is, I just have to consider the universe. I have to think about stars. Like, the biggest thing I can realize exists, I can't comprehend, but I at least understand that it's there. And though it pales in comparison, I think it's helpful because it reminds me how big he must be and how small I am. So again, I was reminded of this this week. Like, get this. There are more stars in the universe than there are grains of sand on all the world's beaches and deserts. I don't know exactly how they know that, but right, they, they, someone much smarter than me is estimating to figure that out. But what, what they estimate here is this. There are over two trillion galaxies in the universe. That's galaxies, not stars. That's a two with 12 zeros. Right, that's huge. And then astronomers estimate that there are 10, I don't even know the number for this, there are 10 with 21 more zeros attached, right? Like stars in the known universe. I think I have a slide because I didn't know the number. I, I literally typed in Google, what is 10 with 21 zeros? Can you help me out? And like, it, I don't even think Google knows. It's just so many. It's so big. It was beyond, it's never been asked that question before, I guess. Um, like I tried to Google it. It's, it's massive. That's how many stars they estimate are in the universe. So many stars, that number. And yet, Psalm 147.4 says, God determines the number of stars in the universe and he calls them all by name. Like he not only knows the name of that number, which we don't know, like I don't think you do, maybe you do, but he knows each and every one of the stars represented in that number and he calls them all by name. And maybe that's just a little bit too big. Like, so just take our galaxy alone, like the Milky Way. It's home to billions and billions of stars. Like if you took time to count each one of the stars in the Milky Way and you went at one per second, it would take you 2,500 years to count all the stars just in our own galaxy. Let that sink in. And there's trillions of these out there, right? Billions of stars. They take that long to count. God simply spoke and they came into being. Like each of the billions of stars and the trillions upon trillions of galaxies. And Genesis tells us that the vastness of this universe is merely a word in the mouth of our God. He spoke a word and they came into being. And then John 1 what do we know about this word that spoke, right? We know this word from John 1 that he took on flesh. Like this all-powerful word of God, the son of God came as a bedwetting baby boy. That's what happens here. That's, that's the Christmas story that Jesus, though he sustains the universe, creates it. He was born a baby, like the creator of all the bodies of water. And yet he knew what it was like to grow thirsty. He's eternally longed for nothing, yet subjected himself to hunger, omnipotent. And yet he grew tired and needed to sleep, omniscient, and yet he grew in knowledge. I read this week that Christmas is that Jesus became what he was not, namely flesh, without ever ceasing to be what he was, God. And that's the story here. That's the wonder. That's the miracle. That's the mystery here. And it doesn't end there. Like that's the beginning. I think they're, just for today, we don't have enough time, but I think three implications of this wonderful mystery of what it means that we have this incarnate Emmanuel, a God who enfleshed himself and be with us. What does this mean for us? And so the first one, I think, an implication here that we have in this text, a conclusion from what Jesus did for us. The first thing we see in this story is that God didn't just come as a man, but God became a man. And I know that might sound like parsing, but it's not. I think it's important to realize the distinction 
like the second person in the Trinity. He wasn't just born in Bethlehem as Jesus, but rather our God was born 100% human to stay 100% human. Meaning he was born in Bethlehem, but it wasn't like just a limited amount of time. He didn't come and just take on the appearance of man, disguised in the form of humanity, nor did he just temporarily borrow flesh and then to give it back. But when Jesus came and was born of Mary, he came 100% God to stay then 100% man. This means that when Jesus, when he rose from the dead, he arose with a real physical body, like ours, a glorified body, but a real tangible body that could be touched. And even now, 1 Timothy 2, 5, speaking of Jesus presently, how he exists right now, tells us that the mediator between God and humanity is the man, Christ Jesus. This word here for the man, Jesus Christ here, it's the Greek word anthropos. It means human. It's where we get our word for anthropology, like study of humanity. So what the Bible then is explicitly saying that right now, as Jesus currently operates as our high priest and mediates for us, he's doing so as fully human, fully human. Like, of course, Jesus, he never ceased to be God. But the wonder of Christmas, why we light these candles, is that our God will now never cease to be human. Think about that. This is good news. Because the hope of Christmas is that God became a man and came to be with them, a man, you well. And though he's still human, he's not here with us now, right? He's not literally with us now. But Jesus even spoke to this directly before he returned to heaven, that while he was away, it would actually be for our gain. That one, as he serves as our high priest interceding on our behalf, he can now do so as one who sympathizes for us as he goes before the Father. But also that he would send to us his Holy Spirit to be with us. But even when he's away, he's saying, I'm going there for the purpose of what? To prepare a home for you. I'm doing something for you. I'm getting it ready. Like Jesus is literally securing for us eternity with him. And this very well could be something tangible in heaven, but we know whatever he secures in heaven will actually be brought down to this home. Like ultimately, whatever he is preparing for us, it's to come back, but not just to return, but to bring all of heaven with him to earth. And that leads to the second implication we see in the Christmas story. Like the ultimate hope of heaven is not just that it'll become our new home, but that heaven will literally be our home made new. Say it again. Like the ultimate hope of heaven, guys, is not just that heaven will be our new home. And that is a hope of heaven, but that heaven will literally be our home made new. Like, hear me, heaven is a real place. It's real. Like, some of you this year have had people go home to heaven. But if you're like me, because I have my grandpa, he's in heaven right now, first Christmas, without him here. And sometimes when I think about that, it's a little overwhelming. It seems really foreign, like far away, right? Like, it's almost, it's hard to comprehend. It feels just in its distance and its difference. My brain can't fathom it. But it's as far from here as it is, it's also as real as here. We don't know where it is. We don't know how Jesus is going to bring us there or exactly what it's going to look like. But what we do know is that one day heaven is coming to earth, that this home will be the new heaven, right? He's coming and bringing them together. Like our hope then isn't some, we said this before, our hope isn't some spiritually abstract reality that we rise to. Like we don't look forward to our disembodied souls ascending to heaven, but a fully embodied heaven with a fully enfleshed God descending to earth. Like this is how the Bible ends in Revelation. Like this is the ultimate coming promise that Jesus will fulfill. And all this makes sense because the Christmas story tells us exactly where Jesus is from. Like this past week, um, Brandy and I drove to Ohio uh, to get a DOG 
for our KIDSs in case we have any spies in here who would do something with this new intelligence so they don't know, um, right? But on the way, uh, the way home, uh, I don't trust you at this point. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, but please don't tell. Uh, on, on, on our way home, like, I guess an interstate closed or something, and we had to go out of our way to get back through Indiana and Ohio. Uh, and we drove through, like, I think every small town that they have to offer. And so we were winding through, and it's like, I'm just going to make the most of this. So I started thinking, like, the amount of stories, the amount of people, like the amount that called this place home, like what it must be like to be from here. And the more I thought about that, like made me so thankful. I was just praying, like thinking, God, I'm back where I'm from, to be here with, with y'all, like to be in Southern Illinois and how special it is that God would design a gift of home. That he's the one who made that. It's literally his design. And so I'm thinking about that. And of course, this, this text is in my, my brain this week. So against the backdrop of what Jesus is doing, it becomes even more amazing. Because if we think about it, God himself is not from anywhere. Like everything is from him. And yet now, when Jesus answers, if he's asked, like, where are you from? He says from here. Do you ever think about that? Like when Jesus asks the question, where are you from? He says from here. Like he's from earth as well. This is his home. Like we aren't just from here, but Jesus is too. Like he was born here. It's what the text just told us. This is his home. It's a wild thought. I think we just scoot right past. And so of course Jesus is bringing heaven here the place that he created for his glory to be on display. It makes sense he's going to bring it to his home, where he's from. Like, this is our hope. Southern Illinois will be made new. Like, heaven's coming here. And it's here that God promises to resurrect, redeem, and restore all things. Like, again, I was thinking again of my grandpa this week, and so, like, I plan on, I hope it works this way. I don't know exactly what it's going to be like, but traveling to Cobden, right, and, and seeing the leaves change and walking with my grandpa and Jesus and just hearing stories how each of them grew up. Um, I don't know if it'll be just like this, but if it's, if it's not, it's only because whatever the home is, it'll be more human than that. Like this place will be better than that now. Heaven will not be less than that experience, right? Or this past week, uh, Jordan and I were joking with Chad one day about country music, and so uh, I'm, I'm, I'm making a starter pack for Chad of country music. And I'm, I just went with the S's. So right now I've got Shania, Shenandoah, and Sawyer Brown for you. And so we're just going to keep going each week um, and just going to hit them with it. But no, we were joking and laughing because uh, easy to make fun of me and it maybe. But one of the things that country music, I think, gets well, gets right and does well is this idea of heaven. Now, I get some things wrong with that, but this idea of a concrete existence, a very human experience. Like sometimes they get to that better than even our contemporary Christian music of heaven. Like, and now it might take it a bit too far. It might not truly be back porches and cornfields and dogs who never get old and hand me down Zebcos, right? That with unlimited casts. Like all of that sounds like heaven to me. I might just be projecting on my own culture. And so God might identify and decide what heaven is supposed to be like. But I know this, if it's not that, again, it's not because it's less than this, but because it'll be more because our heaven will be one that is lived as profoundly and perfectly and completely human. And God's the one who made this. God's the one who's going to restore this and resurrect this. Leads to the third point. Jesus won't just be like us, but we will become like him. In Matthew, we see Jesus, he becomes like us, literally, right? He took on flesh. And then in the New Testament, we see him resurrect and he stays like us. But Paul also says in 1 Corinthians 15 that this now is the promise of what we'll become, we will become, that Jesus in his resurrection is the first fruit of our resurrected flesh. Like what, who Jesus is and how Jesus is now is what we will be like. That's the promise. Like he, exactly as he is is what we will become. That's, that's what first fruit means. We, we can take it to the bank. 
And so if the first coming of Christ was him taking on flesh and being with us, the second coming of Christ is marked by him giving to us the same kind of flesh he now has and us being with him. I'll read that again. If the first coming of Christ was him taking on flesh and being with us, the second coming of Christ is marked by him giving to us the same kind of flesh and us now being with him. This is what Matthew 1 is ultimately all about. Like in the story of God, it's the story of God coming as a baby, born to be like you and with you, but it's ultimately marked by his plan to usher you to be like him and with him. Jesus, he became human. He stepped into the created, the temporal, the finite. He became like you to bring you to what you are not, what you can't become, and what you can never bring yourself to. Uneclipsed life with God in heaven. Full and perfect relationship. Full inside of who God is. Full, full in perfection and eternal life. But it gets better. He came and became like you, not just to take you there, but to also forever be like you and bring this life, this heaven, to be here. Guys, the creator of the cosmos is now forever human. The one who spoke the stars into being and knows each one of them by name wrote himself into the story. The author brought himself into the pages so that you can make, so you can make the story not only one of redemption and one of joy and one with a happy ending, but a forever happy story or forever happily ever after story by joining himself forever with you in it. Like this baby came to do unfathomably more than we could ever realize. Yet, at the same time, to show us that what he's doing is making new what we already know and who we are. Like this is the story of Christmas. Is our God with us forever and forever like us, our incarnate Emmanuel? And so, if you think about it, this, you know, we have like eight days left till Christmas. It goes fast, right? Like we, we get caught up in that. And in fact, I imagine um, as you, you walk out of here today, the pace is only going to continue and maybe pick up. I just want to give you an invitation then. Like if this is the first time hearing who Jesus is and what he came to do for you, to die for your sins, to ra raise from the dead, and to be like you forever and usher you into that, believe. Like believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. But if you have, like don't miss it. Like take this moment, take this time as we worship together in a room of people who love you, who are family with you, and sit in it. Like don't, don't let it come next week, the 24th of December, and realize that you haven't really sat in the wonder of Christmas. And so here in a moment, I'm going to pray. And however you need to respond, respond in worship to who this baby is, to who this baby grew up to be, who this Messiah is, who this God is. Um, respond as you need, um, and, and let's worship together. Father, I thank you for your word. God, I thank you that we could never plumb the fullness of this Christmas story. God, the mystery of who you are, how marvelous you are, how wonderful you are, but at the same time, how relatable you are. God, even now as we pray, like, Jesus, I don't know where you're at. Like, I don't know exactly how to get there. Um, I don't even know if it's in the same universe, God, but I know that you are, and even as you're there, you're like us in this room, and that you are truly there now, and you hear us as we pray. So God, in that reality, I ask that your Holy Spirit, as you are there, God, that as you sent your Holy Spirit, that you will also be here, that you will speak to us, God, you will lead us in this truth, God, that we will not be unchanged, by the story of Christmas, that it isn't just something that we do. It's not just another date on the calendar. But God, this is our history redefined. That we will lean into the promise of what you offer us. 
that doesn't just look backwards, God, but it, it matters today and in this room, but also it matters forever. And we can look ahead with great joy. We praise all in Jesus' name. Amen.